And so sometimes I'm just like, I just shoved some granola in my face because I knew that I needed to have some fuel in my body right now. And I didn't really enjoy it. And that's totally okay. That's absolutely appropriate for the moment. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Leanne Brown, who is the author of the cookbooks, Good and Cheap and Good Enough. Leanne's work focuses on making cooking more accessible and affordable, and she also does a lot of really important work challenging our perceptions around what cooking should be and how we can really make it into whatever we want it to be, including stuff on toast or bowls of cereal. (laughs) I think if you are in a place of feeling stressed about family meals, about feeding yourself, if cooking is feeling really hard for you in any way, whether it's because of who you're feeding or how you're feeling about your relationship with food, I think Leanne's work can be a really helpful starting point to growing your confidence around food and cooking and sort of recognizing what's useful about what we're sold, about what we're supposed to be doing in the kitchen and what's not useful and how you can let it go. So here's Leanne, but first a quick break. So if you are a fan of burnt toast, you might be thinking, how can I support the show? Here are two key ways. First, subscribe to Burnt Toast in your podcast player, and for bonus points, leave it a rating or review. This is free, and it really helps other people find the show. Next, consider a paid Burnt Toast subscription. For just $5 per month or $50 per year, you will get subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast, where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Again, that's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. Paid subscriptions are the reason you will never hear a diet ad in this space. They also let me offer comp subscriptions to folks who need them. And if that's you, just email no questions asked. So click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And thank you for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Leanne. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited. Well, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So (laughs) I always struggle with this. It's like I'm a cookbook author, but at the same time, it's like I don't think that that really describes sort of what I do. It's certainly a huge part of what I do. I love the creating cookbooks aspect, but what I really want to do is sort of welcome anyone and everyone into the kitchen. And I think I have a particular sort of soft spot love in my heart for people who don't really think of themselves as cooks or aren't necessarily as naturally attracted to cooking because I believe that they, you know, have a place in the kitchen. But I think that becoming comfortable with cooking and not even cooking, but just simply making food for oneself Mm -hmm. or those in your life that you want to make food for, I think brings so much empowerment into our lives and can make us feel a really beautiful sense of control. My passion is really in connecting with people and finding like a way in to sort of make peace really with cooking and food in your life. I am someone who loves cooking, but I'm also someone who's very big on like, let's not sort of put cooking on such a pedestal. Like I think it's often held up as this standard that can then feel really hard to me. And so I sort of went on this little journey reading your work where at first I was like, 
oh, cooking solves everything fine. And then I was like, oh, wait, but she's also saying it's okay if you don't like cooking. And it's complex, for sure. And you're making space for that conversation. I do think it's such an important sort of balance sort of in, you know, I would introduce myself as a cookbook author. And so it sort of puts me into this world of like the food world and food media and the way we write and you know, there's TV shows and video and beautiful magazines, and it's all sort of this glorification of food. And there's obviously a place for that. And I think it adds so much to our lives and to our culture. And there's this like artistic aspect to it. And there's so much beauty in it. And then at the same time, I hear from so many people who say like, oh, I'm a terrible cook. And it's like, why are any of us judging ourselves or calling ourselves anything like that? Like, so long as you're able to feed your body every day, that's really all that matters. Like, if you're not a restaurant chef, if you're not doing it for your livelihood, of course, there's a million cookbooks for like, oh, you're busy lives. And there's all this attempt to sort of problem solve. Mm-hmm. I've been going through a lot of family emergency stuff. And that means that like, I don't have a very big appetite a lot of the time because I have a nervous tummy. And so sometimes I'm just like, I just shoved some granola in my face because I knew that I needed to have some fuel in my body right Mm -hmm. now and I didn't really enjoy it and that's totally okay that's absolutely appropriate for the moment and there's so many times in life like that and I don't need to internalize that as I'm a failure and what kind of a cook am I and I've I've gone through periods of life where I've felt that way and now I'm sort of in this place where I'm like that's completely appropriate and I really want to share that kind of message with others because I think it's such an important like balance to all that sort of beautiful curated stuff that we see all the time. As you're talking, I'm just thinking like, why do we expect ourselves as home cooks to live up to this standard? Like it would be like expecting to, I don't know, like do your taxes as well as a professional accountant or like like be able to like solve your own medical (laughs) crisis. Like, of course we need professionals and cooking is, you know, this professional skill. And it's also this thing we have to do day to day. But why do you expect yourself to be able to execute it in the way that someone who's had years of training and has a whole team and has a huge budget? (laughs) I feel like it has to be somewhat rooted in the way we devalue cooking as women's work or, you know, it's Mm got to sort of connect somewhere back to that where we're like, you just have to be good at it because it's like... It's a necessity. Right. You're sort of socially conditioned to have it be part of your gender identity or I don't know. There's... Man, oh, there's so much there's there. So I mean, much. I think we could we could absolutely do a whole episode about like yeah. trying to unpack that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be valuable. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the new cookbook though. So it's called Good Enough, and it is so much more than a cookbook. I really feel like it's a different genre of book because I mean you have recipes, the recipes are wonderful. But, you know, you have just essay after beautiful essay, and so many of them are about why it is okay and even necessary to lower the bar, to lower our standards around food and ourselves. You know, you're giving us this permission to do less. So tell us a little more about, you know, what made you want to write a cookbook that is essentially giving people permission not to cook? Yeah, and that's such a great way of framing it, too. But you're right, that's exactly what I'm doing. After I put out my last book, Good and Cheap, which was really, it was a book sort of created for people on a very, very tight budget, people who are sort of on a food stamps budget. And it was this sort of surprise hit. It sold really well. A ton of people were really interested in it. But it was also this project that was, it was created to be freely available for people. 
And I ended up traveling all over the country and getting to meet so many people from so many different kind of backgrounds and experiences. And I kept having this one experience over and over and over where someone would come up to me and they'd have come to like a cooking event. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, oh, I love what you're doing. You know, I'm so attracted to this. It's so cool. But I am like hopeless. I'm a terrible cook. And this really, really struck me. And I just couldn't stop thinking about this over and over and over again. And I would have a deeper conversation. You know, it didn't stop there. It was usually like, I'd say, oh, what makes you say that? You know, why have you judged yourself this way? And it was almost always something so innocuous, like, my kid doesn't like my food, or I had this really tough experience where, you know, I put on, I'll never forget this woman who said she put on a dinner party and she said, I poisoned someone. I was like, oh my gosh, okay. is, that, that sounds terrible. That and then carry with you for a bit. Yeah, yeah, and I get that. But then I delved deeper into it and it turned out that a person was allergic to something and they just hadn't disclosed that to her. Oh, well, that's not on her. Right? Yeah. I know. It's so heartbreaking, but it's like, there are these experiences that we carry around with us. And I just found myself thinking, like, there just needs to be more to support these people because I can see this longing to be a part, like, they are walking toward cooking, toward food. They want it. They long for it. They want to have a good and healthy relationship with it. And yet they feel like they are less than for some reason or other. Yeah. And I found myself just, like, my heart went out to them. And I also had to noticed that I was like seeing myself reflected in that to a certain extent. Like I've always been, I think, very naturally gifted with cooking and food. But I realized, especially like sort of a year or so later, I got pregnant, um, like sort of after Good and Cheap came out, and it was like this whole big experience. I got pregnant and I ended up being really, really sick, like for longer than the sort of first trimester. I was really ill, really nauseous every day, throwing up a lot of the time. And food was just like not a fun place for me. Mm -hmm. And I found myself just having kind of an identity crisis, just being like, if I can't do this, like, who am I? What do I even have to offer? What do I do? How do I approach this? Has everything I've ever said to people, like, is it all a lot? And then, you know, early days of parenting and all the ways in which like life changed so much. And then my relationship to cooking and to food and how I fed myself and what my priorities and my values were, were changing all the time. And I realized like we need to change our approaches to cooking all the time, depending on what sort of phase of life you're in and what is going on in your life. And no one really talks about that. It's all sort of about like you're a good cook or you're a bad cook. And that's just such nonsense. And it's so disempowering and it leaves us so confused. And I just wanted to, I really wanted to create something that talked about cooking as like a part of our real messy lives. I want to spend a little more time on this thing you noticed, because I've noticed it too in my own reporting of people feeling like they need to apologize. You know, I interview people a lot about their relationships with food, whether they're cooking or just how they feed themselves. And we're really conditioned to apologize for how we eat, whether that's our cooking abilities, or even, you know, if you're eating someone else's food, you're like apologizing for taking the food. Like, I can't believe I'm having the third brownie or, you know, like all of that sort right. of apologizing. Yeah. And I would love to hear more on how you've kind of been working to break that cycle for yourself. What are your thoughts on how do we get to a place of taking more unapologetic joy in food? Or even, even if you're not in a joyful place. I think it's all about 
creating awareness around it, mindfulness, like whatever word you want to use. But it's, I think the journey begins in noticing it, like noticing why do I feel compelled to apologize when someone is offering me food and actually really saying like, this is for you. And you are like, oh, I shouldn't take more than one. It's like, where's that coming from yeah. in me? Yeah. Like that example that you said in noting, oh, I want to say to apologize for taking more. What if I didn't do that? What if I believed this person who is offering this to me that they genuinely wanted me to have this? What if I believed them and took them at their word and I just did what my body was wanting right now, which is to take another one. And I appreciated that and I thanked them for it and I felt gratitude. What if I did that rather than apologizing for how I'm not showing up in this maybe sort of gendered sort of perfection way that we're supposed to like only take one and Mm -hmm. like not eat indulgent food and not be a bother to others or not be an inconvenience, whatever the things are that are coming up. The sort of last chapter in the book is about like putting on a dinner party, like having people over, like Mm -hmm. that experience and sort of the end. And it's sort of, to me, necessarily the end because I think that's like often the thing we maybe get... Like when people go like, I'm going to learn how to cook. You're motivated by like, I want to like put on a big show for others. Yes. But I think that that's almost like one of the later steps. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's like really it's so true. much yeah. more important really to learn to feed yourself in your life. Because otherwise you're so much seeking their approval. And that's never going to really feel good enough. Mm-hmm. Right? Like no matter how much they say, we love it. It's great. If something inside you is like, I don't know if I deserve that, it's never going to feel like enough. And so like learning really to when you have people over to be honest about this, is, you know, this has been a lot of work for me and to really welcome them into your home and really offer with full sort of openness that you want to love them, that like you're at least for me anyway, like having people over and feeding them, it's an act of love. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always tried to like minimize that by being like, whatever, it's no big deal. <laughs> right, right. Because it's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable to be like, I love you. Yeah. I love you so much. I like went to the store and got all these things and I obsessed over this and I worked really hard on it. And here it is. And now I hope you like it. And like, if you don't, I still love you. And that's okay. You know, but, like, yeah, it's no. just like a lot to hold. And so I think about in that moment when I, as the visitor, sort of want to do that, like, oh, I won't take too much. It's like, well, what the person who's offering when I'm in their shoes, I want people to take it. I want them to like it. I want them to feel that joy. I want to feel that connection. It's like we're so often doing this dance of connection where we all long to be in true intimate connection with others. But it's terrifying Mm -hmm. because it's like there's this will you, won't you like, "Ah, do you like me as much as I like you? Oh, my God. God." (laughs) Like all of that comes up. It's like it's hard. Well, and I'm thinking about that sort of standard we talked about where not only do we expect ourselves to execute meals like professional chefs, we mm-hmm. also want the work of it to be invisible, right? And that's yes. kind of what you're talking about. When you have people over, you don't want them to know that actually your kitchen was a wreck an hour ago. You don't mm-hmm. want them to see the dishes. You don't want them to know how much you stressed about whether the sauce turned out right. You want to somehow sort of effortlessly, like, is this like the, exactly. le- the legacy of Martha Stewart? Or I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, where we feel like we have to effortlessly present this meal that is our way of communicating love. And 
all that really does is like devalue the labor further, right? Because we've made it invisible. And it puts up a wall too. It's a way of shutting people out from like the truth of you Mm -hmm. and your experience because maybe look anxious or makes you look like you care too much Mm -hmm. or something like that, whatever that is. And I think it really, it's so self-defeating usually when we look at it because it's like, I actually want people to know how much I care. So do you leave the dirty dishes in the sink before people come over or do you try to get it all cleaned up? I think I absolutely, for the longest time, would always clean up. Yeah, same. And to be honest, I think sometimes I still do just out of practicality because I do like tend to clean as I go Mm -hmm. when I'm making food. Mm -hmm. But I've really tried to make it a practice to let people know when they exclaim over it or appreciate it. I don't say it was nothing. I'll say, yeah, I, you know, thank you so much for noticing. I worked hard on it. And I try also to allow people to help. It was my daughter's fifth birthday a couple weekends ago. And I was trying so hard, like not to do everything myself. And we had some friends from out of town sort of over a little early. And I tried really to like keep sort of stuff aside Mm -hmm. for like them to do Mm -hmm. when they would arrive and like allow others to help me. And it kind of worked. It was hard. It was also one of those things where it's like they sort of showed up like half exhausted too. And like, I think that's the other thing. When you don't do everything yourself, you also have to accept your own standards and your own perfectionism. Like when you ask others for help, they may not do it the way you want them to. Yeah, yeah. And that's still okay, actually. It doesn't mean they don't care and they don't love you. Right. Or anything too, or that it's just, that's part of being like in community that we're all. And maybe the end result is actually better for it, even if it doesn't align with that sort of, Instagram version of the meal that you felt like you were supposed to be executing. Maybe there's something more beautiful in the fact that, yeah. Why did it need to be that way for it to be okay? Right, right. And you have to sit with, so yeah, I mean, the answer really is, I think, just building more awareness around all the ways in which food is just so inextricably linked, I think, with connection um, for all of us, with connection with ourselves, I think, really, first and foremost, actually. And then so much with others and the way that we want others to view us. Yeah, that makes sense. Since you mentioned your daughter, there was a quote in a profile of yours in Input Magazine that I really loved. And I wanted to talk a little bit about feeding kids, but also feeding ourselves. You said, people tell me, oh, your kid must eat so well because you're a cookbook author. (laughs) I take out all the time. I frequently skip meals. My daughter eats way too much mac and cheese, just like every other kid. There is no right way to feed yourself. I'd love to hear where do you think your ideas about the quote, right way to feed yourself have come from? I mean, from the sea we swim in, like from diet culture and food culture. And I think for me personally, I definitely have long sort of wanted to be seen as a good person. Mm -hmm. I think what I've had to reckon with is like that that idea comes from outside of me. Yes. Like it is a performance for others. Say I'm with like a group of other food industry people to be a good person eating perform would be to be like an adventurous eater someone mm-hmm. who eats everything that's there and it's no big deal of course i've had this a million times yeah, that yeah, might yeah. be the way that we perform goodness in that space if it's maybe at a children's birthday party i would say in some at least in sort of like 
certain sort of socioeconomic situations, it would be about like making sure you have like a lot of veggies and like mm-hmm. the really healthy snacks. And, you know, we're all performing, you know, how much we care about making sure our children eat variety of fruits and vegetables. Like the way in which nutrition absolutely has become conflated with, I mean, I'm going to say goodness, but really with our morality, nutrition and morality are so conflated and like they're not the same. No, they really are not. They have really nothing to do with each other. You said your daughter's five now. Does feeding a kid look different than you would have expected it to? You know, I'm doing my best. (laughs) I really try not to get hung up on like what she eats in a given day. I really, in general, actually try not to analyze it too much and to trust. I think that's something that I've learned from my daughter from having her over these last years is actually to trust myself and really to trust her. So often it can feel with a kid like, oh my gosh, they've been doing this behavior or, you know, they're not eating something or they're not sleeping and the sleep is always such a big thing. They're not doing this thing that is... And really, when you look at it, you're like, this is inconvenient for me as a parent. This is challenging for me as a parent. And when something is so challenging for us as a parent, like, say, a kid being like, I literally only want to eat mac and cheese. Yep. That's very challenging for us. And so often when we think about it, we kind of go like, this has to be a problem because I'm feeling so challenged by this. And I think sometimes we have to like, or I've found that I have to actually go, is this really challenging for me or is this an actual problem. Mm -hmm. And often it's like, this is really challenging for me, but this is also normal. And it's okay. It'll shift. And it always does. It just does. They do. They change. And I think too, it's often helpful to step back and say, well, is it a problem for me? Because is there like a real sort of medical health concern about the way they're eating? Or is it a problem for me because they're not eating in the way I wanted to perform my -hmm. child eating? Yeah. Is it embarrassing to me that my child will only eat like white and yellow foods? Like, is that a source of, does that make me feel like I'm a bad parent? It's so normal during this age and even like a lot older for them to restrict the amount of foods that they're eating and to be really easily disgusted by new foods. It's just exactly what their bodies are actually supposed to be doing. And, you know, because of this, like, biological imperative from that's totally out of date, that's millions of years out of date, it's very annoying, but it's still there. And it's a real thing they're feeling in their bodies that is to protect them from if they were off in the woods, you know, and they ate an unfamiliar food, it could kill them, Mm -hmm. like, millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. And their body still has that programming. And so when you see your child's, like, nose wrinkle up and, like, they actually look scared. They are. Right. Like, that's I think real. that's the thing is just reminding parents, like, they're not faking it. They're mm-hmm. not pretending to have that I'm almost going to throw up response. That That's real. Like, and so I think in, that can bring, like, a warmth and compassion, frankly, to the hearts of parents when they're like, oh, right. My kid is really, this is hard for them. Mm-hmm. Because this is a real thing that they're experiencing. And so that, I think, is what allows, that brings in compassion and patience, which is really what parents, I think, need more than anything. Going back to what we started this conversation with talking about the apologizing and, you know, I think about what does it mean if we feel like we have to apologize for how our kids eat? Like, what is that? You know, letting that go is both uh-huh. good for us and, and for them. Thinking, like, how does your kid feel if yeah. you're always apologizing right. for them too? Right, Because they're listening all the time, right? Yes, yeah. Like, you're giving them that message of something's wrong with them. And really, I think something's not wrong with them almost all the time. 
<laughs> exactly. So another thing I wanted to talk about was meal planning. You talk mm. about in the book how you almost never meal plan. Oh, yeah. I love this. I have a lot <laughs> of complicated feelings about meal planning. Do you still not meal plan? Do you ever aspire to do it? I do aspire to do it. Yeah. And actually, I lately have been building more and more like drive toward that for simplicity and to sort of relieve some mental load, honestly. I think when I was younger and I loved to cook and it was such an important part of my life and it was something where it was where I expressed my creativity and it was fun and it was sort of like, it was something, you know, I had like a regular nine to five and then I could like dream about what I was going to make for dinner. And it was, it was like, really meaningful to sort of not decide and go with the flow. Mm -hmm. But where I'm at now, it would be so helpful to just not have to think about that and sort of worry about that and stress about that for multiple hours in the day. I would really like to get my act together, honestly, and just like have a basic meal plan sort of figured out. And that's just the place in my life that I'm at where I'm wanting to relieve myself of overthinking about food. You made the decision. Let yourself have it. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think recognizing that in the past, I really relied upon food as a source of pleasure in my day. And now I am finding wider variety of places to find pleasure. So I'm not as reliant on food as sort of the only place for pleasure in mm -hmm. my life. That's interesting. Is, is a growth for me. That's kind of how they got me with meal planning, too. I still get very frustrated with the kind of culture of meal planning and, again, mm, the performative yeah. aspects of it and how it can lead into all that sort of perfectionist stuff, particularly for women. But, yes, the reality of my life as, you know, a household with two working parents and two young children and yeah. these decisions have to get made. And, yes, realizing that 5 p.m. me is much happier when I've made the decision. There's this point where it's, like, not serving you when you're just doing it because you haven't figured out a better way. And you do this so well in your work to distinguish between, like, when are we cooking for pleasure? When is it, you know, a weekend of puttering around in the kitchen and that's mm -hmm. relaxing and creative? And when is it just getting dinner on the table? And, like, let's recognize that that one is just work and it has to happen and yes. someone's got to do it. And it's really valuable labor, but it's okay to not find it creatively fulfilling. Totally. Yeah, and if making it creatively fulfilling maybe is something that you value— there could be a way to work with yourself or your kids to maybe in the planning part, mm -hmm. find some creativity there. Yes. And I've saved myself that work of having to figure it out in the moment when everyone's tired and hungry. and Right, which is so yeah. predictable. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, I think that's the other thing is like, what universe do I live in where I actually think I'm going to like get smarter and more creative the later it gets in the day? That's <laughs> I've lived in this body for 37 years and yeah. yet I still haven't figured that one out. It's quite I funny. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Well, we end every show with a segment I call Butter for Your Burnt Toast, where we each give a recommendation. So this can be something you've consumed, something you've eaten, a book, a show, or some kind of experience you've had, really anything at all that you are really enjoying right now. I've gotten so into my yoga practice over the last year and a half, and I'm sure many, that is a very normal thing for you <laughs> to have heard, but it's meant, I think for me, what has been so beautiful about it has been 
developing a really different relationship with my body. I feel like I can notice so much more of the signals that are happening in my body because of that practice. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. And I have noticed how much it affects me very much outside of the actual time practicing, but like say in the kitchen and being able to notice, like just being able to notice and honor, oh, I have a nervous stomach. And that makes sense because the stomach is a place where Mm -hmm. We digest food and we ask it to do that, but it needs to do that when it's calm and it's not right now. Right. So that's okay. There's nothing. And of course, I'm not calm right now because there's something difficult that's going on. Right. And so the way that the body is this, I think I'm so grateful for, and this practice happens to have been the place where I've really connected to that. I think there's so many different ways that we can connect to the body, connecting with information from our bodies, not always from our brains and from the, our sort of active thinking mm-hmm. about it, but just to being and noticing that often the information that we need is like already there in our bodies if we can like tune in. And for me, that's been really transformative because I've always looked so much outside myself and I love learning. I, I mean, I'll always, always do it and want to connect to outside sources and learn more about the world and others and what other people think and history and all of that. But that there is something so profound about being able to listen inward and to trust our own bodies and our own minds and to trust like the wisdom that's actually already there. Well, I love that. My butter this week is going to be libraries. Mm. I am just like a really big fan of our local library for many reasons. But the thing that they're doing in in my family's life right now, the children's librarian at our little tiny town library started a book group for elementary school kids. And my eight-year-old is going. And once a month, I take her to this book club. And it is the happiest hour of my month watching this group of like seven to nine-year-old girls. It's all girls at the moment. Boys can join the book club too, but for the moment, (laughs) it's this little group of girls and they are all like lit up talking about whatever book they just read and seeing this like, I mean, of course, like the love of reading thing is great, but also like watching this group of girls. Connection over it. Connection and Mm. the confidence. They're all talking over each other. They're, you know, they're not waiting to raise their hand. They're just so like enthusiastic. And this librarian is cultivating this whole thing with them. And, you know, these girls yes, are— the books are not the solitary. Yeah. They are a beautiful, solitary, peaceful experience. Right. And there's something you can talk about right. with each other. Right. And feel really proud in your knowledge of. And, you know, yeah. um, I've also been working on this chapter in my own book about puberty. So I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of girls shut down in the middle yeah. school years. And just yeah. seeing these girls having this experience now of being loud and, like, proud of their knowledge Mm. and taking up space with it. And I'm just like, yes, go libraries. Even if they do shut down a little bit during the middle school years, they can come back and remember who they are. Exactly. So I love that. Yeah. So shout out to local libraries for doing amazing. I mean, they've been amazing throughout the pandemic for people for so many ways, but this is one way. And we'll also say as authors, supporting libraries supports authors too. I mean, I think so often people are always like, oh, I'm sorry, I got your book from the library instead of buying it. But it actually is really helpful because if libraries know that people want this book, they buy more copies to stock it. So it's all helpful, guys. So yeah. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for being here. I absolutely love your work. I want everyone to check out Good Enough. Tell listeners where they can follow you and find out more. 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm, my website is just my name, leannebrown.com. And I'm on Instagram from time to time at Leanne E. Brown. And I would just be, oh, so delighted to hear from you anytime. Yeah. And if you want to talk about more deeply about any of this stuff, please do reach out. I'd be thrilled to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.